23. Masters of Mankind When we ask, who rules the world? We commonly adopt the standard convention that the actors in world affairs are states, primarily the great powers, and we consider their decisions and the relations among them. That is not wrong. But we would do well to keep in mind that this level of abstraction can also be highly misleading. States, of course, have complex internal structures, and the choices and decisions of the political leadership are heavily influenced by internal concentrations of power, while the general population is often marginalized. That is true even for the more democratic societies, and obviously for others. We cannot gain a realistic understanding of who rules the world while ignoring the masters of mankind, as Adam Smith called them, in his day the merchants and manufacturers of England, in ours, multinational conglomerates, huge financial institutions, retail empires, and the like. Still following Smith, it is also wise to attend to the vile maxim to which the masters of mankind are dedicated, all for ourselves and nothing for other people, a doctrine known otherwise as bitter and incessant class war, often one-sided, much to the detriment of the people of the home country and the world. In the contemporary global order, the institutions of the masters hold enormous power, not only in the international arena but also within their home states, on which they rely to protect their power and to provide economic support by a wide variety of means. When we consider the role of the masters of mankind, we turn to such state policy priorities of the moment as the Trans-Pacific Partnership, one of the investor rights agreements mislabeled free trade agreements in propaganda and commentary. They are negotiated in secret, apart from the hundreds of corporate lawyers and lobbyists writing the crucial details. The intention is to have them adopted in good Stalinist style with fast-track procedures designed to block discussion and allow only the choice of yes or no. Hence, yes. The designers regularly do quite well, not surprisingly. People are incidental, with the consequences one might anticipate. The Second Superpower the neoliberal programs of the past generation have concentrated wealth and power in far fewer hands while undermining functioning democracy. But they have aroused opposition as well, most prominently in Latin America, but also in the centers of global power. The European Union, EU, one of the more promising developments of the post-World War II period, has been tottering because of the harsh effect of the policies of austerity during recession condemned even by the economists of the International Monetary Fund, if not the IMF's political actors. Democracy has been undermined as decision-making shifted to the Brussels bureaucracy, with the northern banks casting their shadow over the proceedings. Mainstream parties have been rapidly losing members to left and to right. The executive director of the Paris-based research group Europa Nova attributes the general disenchantment to a mood of angry impotence as the real power to shape events largely shifted from national political leaders, who in principle at least are subject to democratic politics, to the market, 
the institutions of the European Union, and corporations, quite in accord with neoliberal doctrine. Very similar processes are underway in the United States for somewhat similar reasons, a matter of significance and concern not just for the country, but because of U.S. power, for the world. The rising opposition to the neoliberal assault highlights another crucial aspect of the Standard Convention. It sets aside the public, which often fails to accept the approved role of spectators, rather than participants, assigned to it in liberal democratic theory. Such disobedience has always been of concern to the dominant classes. Just keeping to American history, George Washington regarded the common people who formed the militias that he was to command as an exceedingly dirty and nasty people, evincing an unaccountable kind of stupidity in the lower class of these people. In Violent Politics, his masterful review of insurgencies from the American insurgency to contemporary Afghanistan and Iraq, William Polk concludes that General Washington was so anxious to sideline the fighters he despised that he came close to losing the revolution. Indeed, he might have actually done so, had France not massively intervened and saved the revolution, which until then had been won by guerrillas, whom we would now call terrorists, while Washington's British-style army was defeated time after time and almost lost the war. A common feature of successful insurgencies, Polk records, is that once popular support dissolves after victory, the leadership suppresses the dirty and nasty people who actually won the war with guerrilla tactics and terror for fear that they might challenge class privilege. The elite's contempt for the lower class of these people has taken various forms throughout the years. In recent times, one expression of this contempt is the call for passivity and obedience, moderation in democracy by liberal internationalists reacting to the dangerous democratizing effects of the popular movements of the 1960s. Sometimes states do choose to follow public opinion, eliciting much fury in centers of power. One dramatic case was in 2003, when the Bush administration called on Turkey to join its invasion of Iraq. 95% of Turks opposed that course of action, and to the amazement and horror of Washington, the Turkish government adhered to their views. Turkey was bitterly condemned for this departure from responsible behavior. Deputy Secretary of Defense Paul Wolfowitz, designated by the press as the idealist-in-chief of the administration, berated the Turkish military for permitting the malfeasance of the government and demanded an apology. Unperturbed by these and innumerable other illustrations of our fabled yearning for democracy, respectable commentary continued to laud President George W. Bush for his dedication to democracy promotion, or sometimes criticized him for his naivete in thinking that an outside power could impose its democratic yearnings on others. The Turkish public was not alone. Global opposition to U.S.-U.K. aggression was overwhelming. Support for Washington's war plans scarcely reached 10% almost anywhere, according to international polls. Opposition sparked huge worldwide protests, in the United States as well, probably the first time in history that imperial aggression was strongly protested even before it was officially launched. On the front page of the New York Times, journalist Patrick Tyler reported that there may still be two superpowers on the planet, 
the United States, and world public opinion. Unprecedented protest in the United States was a manifestation of the opposition to aggression that began decades earlier in the condemnation of the U.S. wars in Indochina, reaching a scale that was substantial and influential, even if far too late. By 1967, when the anti-war movement was becoming a significant force, military historian and Vietnam specialist Bernard Fall warned that Vietnam, as a cultural and historic entity, is threatened with extinction, as the countryside literally dies under the blows of the largest military machine ever unleashed on an area of this size. But the anti-war movement did become a force that could not be ignored, nor could it be ignored when Ronald Reagan came into office determined to launch an assault on Central America. His administration mimicked closely the steps John F. Kennedy had taken 20 years earlier in launching the war against South Vietnam, but had to back off because of the kind of vigorous public protest that had been lacking in the early 1960s. The assault was awful enough. The victims have yet to recover. But what happened to South Vietnam and later all of Indochina, where the second superpower imposed its impediments only much later in the conflict, was incomparably worse. It is often argued that the enormous public opposition to the invasion of Iraq had no effect. That seems incorrect to me. Again, the invasion was horrifying enough, and its aftermath is utterly grotesque. Nevertheless, it could have been far worse. Vice President Dick Cheney, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, and the rest of Bush's top officials could never even contemplate the sort of measures that President Kennedy and President Lyndon Johnson adopted 40 years earlier, largely without protest. Western Power Under Pressure There is far more to say, of course, about the factors in determining state policy that are put to the side when we adopt the standard convention that states are the actors in international affairs. But with such non-trivial caveats as these, let us nevertheless adopt the convention, at least as a first approximation to reality. Then the question of who rules the world leads at once to such concerns as China's rise to power and its challenge to the United States and world order, the new Cold War simmering in Eastern Europe, the global war on terror, American hegemony and American decline, and a range of similar considerations. The challenges faced by Western power at the outset of 2016 are usefully summarized within the conventional framework by Gideon Rachman, chief foreign affairs columnist for the London Financial Times. He begins by reviewing the Western picture of world order. Ever since the end of the Cold War, the overwhelming power of the U.S. military has been the central fact of international politics. This is particularly crucial in three regions. East Asia, where the U.S. Navy has become used to treating the Pacific as an American lake. Europe, where NATO, meaning the United States, which accounts for a staggering three-quarters of NATO's military spending, guarantees the territorial integrity of its member states. And the Middle East, where giant U.S. naval and air bases exist to reassure friends and to intimidate rivals. The problem of world order today, Rockman continues, is that 
these security orders are now under challenge in all three regions because of Russian intervention in Ukraine and Syria and because of China turning its nearby seas from an American lake to clearly contested water. The fundamental question of international relations, then, is whether the United States should accept that other major powers should have some kind of zone of influence in their neighborhoods. Rockman thinks it should, for reasons of diffusion of economic power around the world, combined with simple common sense. There are, to be sure, ways of looking at the world from different standpoints. But let us keep to these three regions. Surely critically important ones. The challenges today. East Asia. Beginning with the American Lake, some eyebrows might be raised over the report in mid-December 2015 that an American B-52 bomber on a routine mission over the South China Sea unintentionally flew within two nautical miles of an artificial island built by China, senior defense officials said, exacerbating a hotly divisive issue for Washington and Beijing. Those familiar with the grim record of the 70 years of the nuclear weapons era will be all too aware that this is the kind of incident that has often come perilously close to igniting terminal nuclear war. One need not be a supporter of China's provocative and aggressive actions in the South China Sea to notice that the incident did not involve a Chinese nuclear-capable bomber in the Caribbean, or off the coast of California, where China has no pretensions of establishing a Chinese lake. Luckily for the world. Chinese leaders understand very well that their country's maritime trade routes are ringed with hostile powers, from Japan through the Malacca Straits and beyond, backed by overwhelming U.S. military force. Accordingly, China is proceeding to expand westward, with extensive investments and careful moves toward integration. In part, these developments are within the framework of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, SCO, which includes the Central Asian states and Russia, and soon India and Pakistan, with Iran as one of the observers, a status that was denied to the United States, which was also called on to close all military bases in the region. China is constructing a modernized version of the old Silk Roads, with the intent not only of integrating the region under Chinese influence, but also of reaching Europe and the Middle Eastern oil-producing regions. It is pouring huge sums into creating an integrated Asian energy and commercial system, with extensive high-speed rail lines and pipelines. One element of the program is a highway through some of the world's tallest mountains to the new Chinese-developed port of Gwadar in Pakistan, which will protect oil shipments from potential U.S. interference. The program may also, China and Pakistan hope, spur industrial development in Pakistan, which the United States has not undertaken despite massive military aid, and might also provide an incentive for Pakistan to clamp down on domestic terrorism, a serious issue for China in western Xinjiang province. Gwadar will be part of China's string of pearls, bases, being constructed in the Indian Ocean for commercial purposes, but potentially also for military use, with the expectation that China might someday be able to project power as far as the Persian Gulf for the first time in the modern era. 
All of these moves remain immune to Washington's overwhelming military power, short of annihilation by nuclear war, which would destroy the United States as well. In 2015, China also established the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, AIIB, with itself as the main shareholder. Fifty-six nations participated in the opening in Beijing in June, including U.S. allies Australia, Britain, and others which joined in defiance of Washington's wishes. The United States and Japan were absent. Some analysts believe that the new bank might turn out to be a competitor to the Bretton Woods institutions, the IMF and the World Bank, in which the United States holds veto power. There are also some expectations that the SCO might eventually become a counterpart to NATO. The Challenges Today Eastern Europe Turning to the second region, Eastern Europe, there is a crisis brewing at the NATO-Russian border. It is no small matter. In his illuminating and judicious scholarly study of the region, Richard Sakwa writes, all too plausibly, that the Russo-Georgian War of August 2008 was, in effect, the first of the wars to stop NATO enlargement. The Ukraine crisis of 2014 is the second. It is not clear whether humanity would survive a third. The West sees NATO enlargement as benign. Not surprisingly, Russia, along with much of the global South, has a different opinion, as do some prominent Western voices. George Kennan warned early on that NATO enlargement is a tragic mistake, and he was joined by senior American statesmen in an open letter to the White House describing it as a policy error of historic proportions. The present crisis has its origins in 1991, with the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union. There were then two contrasting visions of a new security system and political economy in Eurasia. In Sakwa's words, one vision was of a wider Europe, with the EU at its heart, but increasingly coterminous with the Euro-Atlantic security and political community. And on the other side, there was the idea of greater Europe, a vision of a continental Europe, stretching from Lisbon to Vladivostok, that has multiple centers, including Brussels, Moscow, and Ankara, but with a common purpose in overcoming the divisions that have traditionally plagued the continent. Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev was the major proponent of Greater Europe, a concept that also had European roots in Gaulism and other initiatives. However, as Russia collapsed under the devastating market reforms of the 1990s, the vision faded, only to be renewed as Russia began to recover and seek a place on the world stage under Vladimir Putin, who, along with his associate Dmitry Medvedev, has repeatedly called for the geopolitical unification of all greater Europe from Lisbon to Vladivostok to create a genuine strategic partnership. These initiatives were greeted with polite contempt, Sakwa writes, regarded as little more than a cover for the establishment of a greater Russia by stealth and an effort to drive a wedge between North America and Western Europe. Such concerns trace back to earlier Cold War fears that Europe might become a third force, independent of both the great and minor superpowers, and moving toward closer links to the latter, as can be seen in Willy Brandt's Ostopolitik and other initiatives. 
the Western response to Russia's collapse was triumphalist. It was hailed as signaling the end of history, the final victory of Western capitalist democracy, almost as if Russia were being instructed to revert to its pre-World War I status as a virtual economic colony of the West. NATO enlargement began at once, in violation of verbal assurances to Gorbachev that NATO forces would not move one inch to the east after he agreed that a unified Germany could become a NATO member, a remarkable concession in the light of history. That discussion kept to East Germany. The possibility that NATO might expand beyond Germany was not discussed with Gorbachev, even if privately considered. Soon, NATO did begin to move beyond, right to the borders of Russia. The general mission of NATO was officially changed to a mandate to protect crucial infrastructure of the global energy system, sea lanes and pipelines, giving it a global area of operations. Furthermore, under a crucial Western revision of the now widely heralded doctrine of responsibility to protect, sharply different from the official UN version, NATO may now also serve as an intervention force under U.S. command. Of particular concern to Russia are plans to expand NATO to Ukraine. These plans were articulated explicitly at the Bucharest NATO summit of April 2008, when Georgia and Ukraine were promised eventual membership in NATO. The wording was unambiguous. NATO welcomes Ukraine's and Georgia's Euro-Atlantic aspirations for membership in NATO. We agreed today that these countries will become members of NATO. With the Orange Revolution victory of pro-Western candidates in Ukraine in 2004, State Department Representative Daniel Fried rushed there and emphasized U.S. support for Ukraine's NATO and Euro-Atlantic aspirations, as a WikiLeaks report revealed. Russia's concerns are easily understandable. They are outlined by international relations scholar John Mearsheimer in the leading U.S. establishment journal, Foreign Affairs. He writes that, The taproot of the current crisis over Ukraine is NATO expansion and Washington's commitment to move Ukraine out of Moscow's orbit and integrate it into the West, which Putin viewed as a direct threat to Russia's core interests. Who can blame him? Mearsheimer asks, pointing out that Washington may not like Moscow's position, but it should understand the logic behind it. That should not be too difficult. After all, as everyone knows, the United States does not tolerate distant great powers deploying military forces anywhere in the Western Hemisphere much less on its borders. In fact, the U.S. stand is far stronger. It does not tolerate what is officially called successful defiance of the Monroe Doctrine of 1823, which declared, but could not yet implement, U.S. control of the hemisphere. And a small country that carries out such successful defiance may be subjected to the terrors of the earth and a crushing embargo, as happened to Cuba. We need not ask how the United States would have reacted had the countries of Latin America joined the Warsaw Pact, with plans for Mexico and Canada to join as well. The merest hint of the first tentative steps in that direction would have been terminated with extreme prejudice, to adopt CIA lingo. As in the case of China, one does not have to regard Putin's moves and motives favorably 
to understand the logic behind them, nor to grasp the importance of understanding that logic instead of issuing imprecations against it. As in the case of China, a great deal is at stake, reaching as far, literally, as questions of survival. The Challenges Today The Islamic World Let us turn to the third region of major concern, the largely Islamic world, also the scene of the Global War on Terror, GWOT, that George W. Bush declared in 2001 after the 9-11 terrorist attack. To be more accurate, re-declared. The GWOT was declared by the Reagan administration when it took office, with fevered rhetoric about a plague spread by depraved opponents of civilization itself, as Reagan put it, and a return to barbarism in the modern age, the words of George Shultz, his Secretary of State. The original GWOT has been quietly removed from history. It very quickly turned into a murderous and destructive terrorist war afflicting Central America, Southern Africa, and the Middle East, with grim repercussions to the present, even leading to condemnation of the United States by the World Court, which Washington dismissed. In any event, it is not the right story for history, so it is gone. The success of the Bush-Obama version of GWOT can readily be evaluated on direct inspection. When the war was declared, the terrorist targets were confined to a small corner of tribal Afghanistan. They were protected by Afghans who mostly disliked or despised them under the tribal code of hospitality, which baffled Americans when poor peasants refused to turn over Osama bin Laden for the, to them, astronomical sum of $25 million. There are good reasons to believe that a well-constructed police action or even serious diplomatic negotiations with the Taliban might have placed those suspected of the 9-11 crimes in American hands for trial and sentencing. But such options were off the table. Instead, the reflexive choice was large-scale violence not with the goal of overthrowing the Taliban, that came later, but to make clear U.S. contempt for tentative Taliban offers of the possible extradition of bin Laden. How serious these offers were we do not know, since the possibility of exploring them was never entertained. Or perhaps the United States was just intent on trying to show its muscle, score a victory, and scare everyone in the world. They don't care about the suffering of the Afghans or how many people we will lose. That was the judgment of the highly respected anti-Taliban leader Abdul Haq, one of the many oppositionists who condemned the American bombing campaign launched in October 2001 as a big setback for their efforts to overthrow the Taliban from within, a goal they considered within their reach. His judgment is confirmed by Richard A. Clark, who was chairman of the Counterterrorism Security Group at the White House under President George W. Bush when the plans to attack Afghanistan were made. As Clark describes the meeting, when informed that the attack would violate international law, the president yelled in the narrow conference room, I don't care what the international lawyers say, we are going to kick some ass. 
The attack was also bitterly opposed by the major aid organizations working in Afghanistan, who warned that millions were on the verge of starvation and that the consequences might be horrendous. The consequences for poor Afghanistan years later need hardly be reviewed. The next target of the sledgehammer was Iraq. The U.S.-U.K. invasion, utterly without credible pretext, is the major crime of the 21st century. The invasion led to the death of hundreds of thousands of people in a country where the civilian society had already been devastated by American and British sanctions that were regarded as genocidal by the two distinguished international diplomats who administered them and resigned in protest for this reason. The invasion also generated millions of refugees, largely destroyed the country, and instigated a sectarian conflict that is now tearing apart Iraq and the entire region. It is an astonishing fact about our intellectual and moral culture that in informed and enlightened circles, it can be called, blandly, the liberation of Iraq. Pentagon and British Ministry of Defense polls found that only 3% of Iraqis regarded the U.S. security role in their neighborhood as legitimate. Less than 1% believed that coalition, U.S.-U.K., forces were good for their security. 80% opposed the presence of coalition forces in the country, and a majority supported attacks on coalition troops. Afghanistan has been destroyed beyond the possibility of reliable polling, but there are indications that something similar may be true there as well. Particularly in Iraq, the United States suffered a severe defeat, abandoning its official war aims and leaving the country under the influence of the sole victor, Iran. The sledgehammer was also wielded elsewhere, notably in Libya, where the three traditional imperial powers, Britain, France, and the United States, procured Security Council Resolution 1973 and instantly violated it, becoming the Air Force of the Rebels. The effect was to undercut the possibility of a peaceful negotiated settlement, sharply increase casualties by at least a factor of ten, according to political scientist Alan Cooperman, leave Libya in ruins in the hands of warring militias, and, more recently, to provide the Islamic State with a base that it can use to spread terror beyond. Quite sensible diplomatic proposals by the African Union, accepted in principle by Libya's Muammar Gaddafi, were ignored by the imperial triumvirate, as Africa specialist Alex Duval reviews. A huge flow of weapons and jihadis has spread terror and violence from West Africa, now the champion for terrorist murders, to the Levant, where the NATO attack also sent a flood of refugees from Africa to Europe. Yet another triumph of humanitarian intervention. And, as the long and often ghastly record reveals, not an unusual one, going back to its modern origins four centuries ago. The Costs of Violence In brief, the GWOT sledgehammer strategy has spread jihadi terror from a tiny corner of Afghanistan to much of the world, from Africa through the Levant and South Asia to Southeast Asia. It has also incited attacks in Europe 
and the United States. The invasion of Iraq made a substantial contribution to this process, much as intelligence agencies had predicted. Terrorism specialists Peter Bergen and Paul Cruikshank estimate that the Iraq War generated a stunning sevenfold increase in the yearly rate of fatal jihadist attacks, amounting to literally hundreds of additional terrorist attacks and thousands of civilian lives lost. Even when terrorism in Iraq and Afghanistan is excluded, fatal attacks in the rest of the world have increased by more than one-third. Other exercises have been similarly productive. A group of major human rights organizations, Physicians for Social Responsibility, U.S., Physicians for Global Survival, Canada, and International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, Germany, conducted a study that sought to provide as realistic an estimate as possible of the total body count in the three main war zones, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Pakistan, during 12 years of war on terrorism, including an extensive review of the major studies and data published on the numbers of victims in these countries, along with additional information on military actions. Their conservative estimate is that these wars killed about 1.3 million people, a toll that could also be in excess of 2 million. A database search by independent researcher David Peterson in the days following the publication of the report found virtually no mention of it. Who cares? More generally, studies carried out by the Oslo Peace Research Institute showed that two-thirds of the region's conflict fatalities were produced in originally internal disputes where outsiders imposed their solutions. In such conflicts, 98% of fatalities were produced only after outsiders had entered the domestic dispute with their military might. In Syria, the number of direct conflict fatalities more than tripled after the West initiated airstrikes against the self-declared Islamic State, and the CIA started its indirect military interference in the war. Interference, which appears to have drawn the Russians in, as advanced U.S. anti-tank missiles were decimating the forces of their ally, Bashar al-Assad. Early indications are that Russian bombing is having the usual consequences. The evidence reviewed by political scientist Timo Kivimaki indicates that the protection wars, fought by coalitions of the willing, have become the main source of violence in the world, occasionally contributing over 50% of total conflict fatalities. Furthermore, in many of these cases, including Syria, as he reviews, there were opportunities for diplomatic settlement that were ignored. As discussed elsewhere, that has also been true in other horrific situations, including the Balkans in the early 1990s, the First Gulf War, and, of course, the Indochina Wars, the worst crime since World War II. In the case of Iraq, the question does not even arise. There surely are some lessons here. The general consequences of resorting to the sledgehammer against vulnerable societies comes as little surprise. William Polk's careful study of insurgencies, previously mentioned, should be essential reading for those who want to understand today's conflicts, and surely for planners, 
assuming that they care about human consequences and not merely power and domination. Polk reveals a pattern that has been replicated over and over. The invaders, perhaps professing the most benign motives, are naturally disliked by the population, who disobey them, at first in small ways, eliciting a forceful response which increases opposition and support for resistance. The cycle of violence escalates until the invaders withdraw, or gain their ends by something that may approach genocide. Obama's global drone assassination campaign, a remarkable innovation in global terrorism, exhibits the same patterns. By most accounts, it is generating terrorists more rapidly than it is murdering those suspected of someday intending to harm us, an impressive contribution by a constitutional lawyer on the 800th anniversary of Magna Carta, which established the basis for the principle of presumption of innocence that is the foundation of civilized law. Another characteristic feature of such interventions is the belief that the insurgency will be overcome by eliminating its leaders. But when such an effort succeeds, the reviled leader is regularly replaced by someone younger, more determined, more brutal, and more effective. Polk gives many examples. Military historian Andrew Coburn has reviewed American campaigns to kill drug and then terror kingpins over a long period in his important study, Kill Chain, and found the same results. And one can expect with fair confidence that the pattern will continue. No doubt, right now, U.S. strategists are seeking ways to murder the caliph of the Islamic State, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who is a bitter rival of al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri. The likely result of this achievement is forecast by prominent terrorism scholar Bruce Hoffman, senior fellow at the U.S. Military Academy's Combating Terrorism Center. He predicts that al-Baghdadi's death would likely pave the way for a rapprochement with al-Qaeda, producing a combined terrorist force unprecedented in scope, size, ambition, and resources. Polk cites a treatise on warfare by Henry Jomini, influenced by Napoleon's defeat at the hands of Spanish guerrillas, that became a textbook for generations of cadets at the West Point Military Academy. Jomini observed that such interventions by major powers typically result in wars of opinion, and nearly always national wars, if not at first, then becoming so in the course of the struggle, by the dynamics that Polk describes. Jomini concludes that Commanders of regular armies are ill-advised to engage in such wars because they will lose them, and even apparent successes will prove short-lived. Careful studies of al-Qaeda and ISIS have shown that the United States and its allies are following their game plan with some precision. Their goal is to draw the West as deeply and actively as possible into the quagmire, and to perpetually engage and enervate the United States and the West in a series of prolonged overseas ventures in which they will undermine their own societies, expend their resources, and increase the level of violence, setting off the dynamic that Polk reviews. Scott Atron, one of the most insightful researchers on jihadi movements, calculates that the 9-11 attacks cost between 400,000 and $500,000 to execute, 
whereas the military and security response by the U.S. and its allies is in the order of 10 million times that figure. On a strictly cost-benefit basis, this violent movement has been wildly successful, beyond even bin Laden's original imagination, and is increasingly so. Herein lies the full measure of jujitsu-style asymmetric warfare. After all, who could claim that we are better off than before, or that the overall danger is declining? And if we continue to wield the sledgehammer, tacitly following the jihadi script, the likely effect is even more violent jihadism with broader appeal. The record, Atran advises, should inspire a radical change in our counter-strategies. Al-Qaeda, ISIS, are assisted by Americans who follow their directives. For example, Ted Carpetbomum Cruz, a top Republican presidential candidate, or, at the other end of the mainstream spectrum, the leading Middle East and international affairs columnist of the New York Times, Thomas Friedman, who in 2003 offered Washington advice on how to fight in Iraq on the Charlie Rose Show. There was what I would call the terrorism bubble, and what we needed to do was to go over to that part of the world and burst that bubble. We needed to go over there, basically, and uh, take a very big stick right in the heart of that world and burst that bubble. And there was only one way to do it. What they needed to see was American boys and girls going house to house, from Basra to Baghdad, and basically saying, which part of this sentence don't you understand? You don't think we care about our open society? You think this bubble fantasy, we're going to just let it go? Well, suck on this. Okay, that, Charlie, was what this war was about. That'll show the ragheads. Looking forward. Atron and other close observers generally agree on the prescriptions. We should begin by recognizing what careful research has convincingly shown those drawn to jihad, are longing for something in their history, in their traditions, with their heroes and their morals. And the Islamic State, however brutal and repugnant to us and even to most in the Arab Muslim world, is speaking directly to that. What inspires the most lethal assailants today is not so much the Quran, but a thrilling cause and a call to action that promises glory and esteem in the eyes of friends. In fact, Few of the jihadis have much of a background in Islamic texts or theology, if any. The best strategy, Polk advises, would be a multinational, welfare-oriented and psychologically satisfying program that would make the hatred ISIS relies upon less virulent. The elements have been identified for us. Communal needs, compensation for previous transgressions, and calls for a new beginning. He adds, a carefully phrased apology for past transgressions would cost little and do much. Such a project could be carried out in refugee camps or in the hovels and grim housing projects of the Paris Bonlieu, where, Atron writes, his research team found fairly wide tolerance or support for ISIS's values. And even more could be done by true dedication to diplomacy and negotiations instead of reflexive resort to violence. Not least in significance would be an honorable response to the refugee crisis that was a long time in coming 
but surged to prominence in Europe in 2015. That would mean, at the very least, sharply increasing humanitarian relief to the camps in Lebanon, Jordan, and Turkey, where miserable refugees from Syria barely survive. But the issues go well beyond and provide a picture of the self-described enlightened states that is far from attractive and should be an incentive to action. There are countries that generate refugees through massive violence, like the United States, secondarily Britain and France. Then there are countries that admit huge numbers of refugees, including those fleeing from Western violence like Lebanon, easily the champion per capita, Jordan and Syria before it imploded, among others in the region. And partially overlapping, there are countries that both generate refugees and refuse to take them in, not only from the Middle East, but also from the U.S. backyard south of the border. A strange picture, painful to contemplate. An honest picture would trace the generation of refugees much further back into history. Veteran Middle East correspondent Robert Fisk reports that one of the first videos produced by ISIS showed a bulldozer pushing down a rampart of sand that had marked the border between Iraq and Syria. As the machine destroyed the dirt revetment, the camera panned down to a handwritten poster lying in the sand. End of Sykes-Pico, it said. For the people of the region, the Sykes-Pico agreement is the very symbol of the cynicism and brutality of Western imperialism. Conspiring in secret during World War I, Britain's Mark Sykes and France's François-Georges Pico carved up the region into artificial states to satisfy their own imperial goals with utter disdain for the interests of the people living there and in violation of the wartime promises issued to induce Arabs to join the Allied war effort. The agreement mirrored the practices of the European states that devastated Africa in a similar manner. It transformed what had been relatively quiet provinces of the Ottoman Empire into some of the least stable and most internationally explosive states in the world. Repeated Western interventions since then in the Middle East and Africa have exacerbated the tensions, conflicts, and disruptions that have shattered the societies. The end result is a refugee crisis that the innocent West can scarcely endure. Germany has emerged as the conscience of Europe. At first, but no longer, admitting almost one million refugees in one of the richest countries in the world with a population of 80 million. In contrast, the poor country of Lebanon has absorbed an estimated 1.5 million Syrian refugees, now a quarter of its population, on top of half a million Palestinian refugees registered with the UN Refugee Agency, UNRWA, mostly victims of Israeli policies. Europe is also groaning under the burden of refugees from the countries it has devastated in Africa, not without U.S. aid, as Congolese and Angolans, among others, can testify. Europe is now seeking to bribe Turkey with over two million Syrian refugees to distance those fleeing the horrors of Syria from Europe's borders, just as Obama is pressuring Mexico to keep U.S. borders free from miserable people seeking to escape the aftermath of Reagan's GWOT, along with those seeking to escape more recent disasters, including a military coup in Honduras, that Obama almost alone legitimized, 
which created one of the worst horror chambers in the region. Words can hardly capture the U.S. response to the Syrian refugee crisis, at least any words I can think of. Returning to the opening question, who rules the world, we might also want to pose another question. What principles and values rule the world? That question should be foremost in the minds of the citizens of the rich and powerful states who enjoy an unusual legacy of freedom, privilege, and opportunity thanks to the struggles of those who came before them and who now face fateful choices as to how to respond to challenges of great human import. This is Brian Jones. We hope you've enjoyed this production of Who Rules the World? by Noam Chomsky. This program was produced by John Marshall Media. Text copyright 2016 by L. Valeria Galvao Wasserman Chomsky. Production copyright 2016 by Macmillan Audio. All rights reserved. Audible hopes you have enjoyed.